I had a, I had a band in Liverpool when I was growing up. Yeah, and in my teens. And yes, we played at the Cavern a couple of times. We were called Tony Snow and the Blizzards, and um, we were seriously bad. We really were. But we did once come second in a rock and roll competition in a church hall to a band called the Quarrymen. Voice of the musical. Welcome to Voice of the Musical. My guest today is Richard Stilgo, one of the most familiar faces on TV during the 70s and 80s. Uh, he went from there to writing the lyrics to Starlight Express, uh, the mega musical from 1984 with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and contributing additional lyrics to Cats and Phantom of the Opera, two of the other enormous shows from that era. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. Um, I noticed with looking at your uh, biography in stage and film musicals, my wonderful encyclopedia um, Bible, that uh, we have two things in common. One, one is that we both went to Clare College, Cambridge, and the other, you were in the Cambridge Footlights. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the musical life in Cambridge during the time that you were there. Well, I was there reading music for a glorious year, and then I thought, then I thought the hell with this, and uh, they also thought the hell with you, so we, we parted company. Um, at the time, I think I, I sang Pooh Bar with the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, but that was almost the lightest anything was allowed to do, mm-hmm. apart from the footlights. Mm. Um, because it was before the time that music theatre really existed in any serious form, except in America. It's only really quite recently that the musical has been thought of as a proper theatrical form, rather than just a bit of froth, mm. uh, over here. Uh, largely because of Andrew. Yes. I more than, yeah, certainly because of Andrew more than anybody else. Um, so there wasn't any at Cambridge. It was nice to go back to for the reopening of the Arts Theatre or the AD, ADC, I think, uh, quite recently, and find that there is a proper uh, Cambridge University Music Theatre Society doing musicals and with a certain amount of respect for them and a certain amount of look at the history. But uh, But there wasn't none while I was there. So... How did you um, how did you cope with um, a diet of GNS and? Uh... Well, there was GNS. There was um, there was the footlights, and uh, I used to write silly songs for that. And there was a thing called Cules, which is Cambridge University Light Entertainment Society, hmm. which actually was just as influential. I mean, certainly most of the I worked with John Cleese a lot on that, and we would go into schools and the occasional prison, and do um, rather rather strange historical sketches. Um, which, I mean, that was, that was good fun. But, uh, and obviously, you know, there was a lot of challenge and the normal challenge that anybody feels when they go to university of having been the only one at school who did this kind of stuff. Mm. Suddenly you're among loads of other people who have been doing the same kind of stuff and do it better than you. And what sort of effect did that have it on you at the time? Did it, did it make you raise your game? No, the normal, the normal crushing of self-confidence that <laughs> <laughs> happens to most students, I think, when they arrive there. But I also, got, I, I think I picked up a lot of stuff from a lot of other people um, and realized that, yes, you had to raise your game. And, and also you start realizing that it's going to be hard work mm. um, if you're going to, be, going to be part of this. Uh, it's, you know, it's the great failure of the X Factor, isn't it? Mm of making it look easy. Yes. It was nice when the BBC did Fame Academy mm. and showed that actually the harder you worked, the more likely you were to get there. Did you take part in the, shall we say, the legitimate music scene? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, at the time, my ambition was to be a proper singer. And I've still got odd programmes of, of me doing, you know, handle oratorios and things. And, um, yeah, I sang a lot of concerts. David Wilcox was the director of music at that time. At King's, yes. yes. Yeah, he was, the one, he was the one I had to sort of get past to get, uh, to get a choral exhibition at Clare. And um, he was an inspiration to me as to many. The, the demands of choral life must have been extreme. I remember that when I was there, it was difficult for anyone who was in the choir to do anything else. It, it sounds like you managed to do an awful lot. Probably one of the... Yes, except doing any work. <laughs> you know, which... So by, the, by the choir and writing songs, and also an awful lot of catching up with... Um, I just remember reading all of Aldous Huxley and all of Evelyn Waugh and all kinds of stuff that all my contemporaries seemed to have read and I hadn't. Um, so there was a lot of uh, just growing up culturally, I think, that had to go on. Um, and, yeah, yeah the, choir was, the choir was busy, but uh, it was, of course, an all-male choir then. I think a couple of years later, um, Claire was the first male college to let in women. 
And as a result, Clare now has virtually the best music in Cambridge uh, because of the extra yes. dimension that's given. And what did you do with John Cleese? Because, I mean, he's known for many things, but being a singer isn't one of them. Were you doing Oh, no, not singing. But, I mean, uh, uh, I just remember there was, a, there was a very, very ancient sketch, probably written by Jimmy Edwards, um, called I Am the Duke of Buckingham's Servant, <laughs> about an actor who has this one line but hasn't been told who he's playing in the play. <laughs> and so is guessing how he might deliver this line and whether it's... Shakespeare and whether it's wild and things like that and John Cleese would take about 17 minutes over that and it was absolutely brilliant. At the end naturally he goes on stage to do his line and dries completely and forgets to say anything at all. Had you been writing silly songs before you went to university was this, or was this something you found when you were there? Um, yes, a little bit but not, not much mostly attempts at pop songs which um, were really dire <laughs> and uh, um, but was I writing silly songs before then? I suppose, yes. I mean, it was the time of Tom Lehrer, mm. who is still, you know, um, greatest songwriter never to write a musical, really. Mm. And so there were attempts at that, but nothing, nothing that were any good and nothing that I've still got. It feels like you're in the tradition going, you know, of satirical songs going back to to Flanders and Swan, to, to Lara, and I suppose ultimately to, to Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. Do, you feel like, do you feel like that's true, you're part of a, a chain? Well, yeah, except that everybody knows all of Gilbert and Sullivan and Flanders and Swan and Tom Lara, and nobody knows any of mine. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, mine were very, very specifically topical mm. for an event that had happened that week yes. and were completely useless the week afterwards. And I, mean, I started doing them on the Today programme on, in 1965, I mm. think. Um, because it was always useful to have two minutes of somebody singing a song on the program about something that was too expensive to send a crew out to cover. <laughs> and so I, you know, I did lots and lots of those, um, but very few I've still got. And you would have to do 20 minutes explanation before the two-minute song to explain what was, had actually happened that week and why that song got wrote. You must be one of the most prolific um songwriters that, that that we've had simply be, you know because you had this um this reputation for being able to turn over songs so quickly how do you think that formed you as a writer well it's rather worrying i mean jeffrey archer is a very prolific author <laughs> you know but it's not a comparison one would welcome well i don't know i mean i you're you're incredibly self-effacing and yet you've you know you've contributed to, to one of the most successful musicals of all time and and in, in addition to which you it's not everybody that can to do that turnaround. I saw you you depped for Mitch Ben um, a couple of years back, um, and it's a, it's an, an enviable talent. I, I think that's, that that some people um, have the ability to turn out a song, but to be able to use what's around you and really do something which will hold water um, isn't to be sneezed at. Uh, yeah, it's great, great honour to be asked to depth for Mitch Ben. I'm a big admirer of Mitch Ben. Mm. I think he does, does fantastic work, and it you know, and it always rhymes. It's always proper. It's never lazy. Yes, because um, I'm very picky about that, mm. about time and time and line not rhyming, mm. and um, very difficult explaining that to people. Except if, except if it's rock and roll. If it's rock and roll, the rules are different. But yes. um, but for proper songs that are going to last, yeah, the the turnaround and the change. I mean, meeting Andrew Lloyd Webber in, I think 1981. Um, it was almost the first time I'd ever had to write a song to be sung by anybody who wasn't me. <laughs> And that was, uh, and also almost the first time anybody had said, try and write a song that's going to be sung twice. Right. <laughs> you know, if, if not more. And it's an awfully good lesson to learn that one song that gets sung 10,000 times, on that whole, earns you more than 10,000 songs that get sung once. Yes, and there's an awful lot less effort. Um, but Andrew and I bumped into each other on on a Parkinson show, because I was doing a, I was touring my substandard Tom Lehrer, and he was hyping cats. Mm which had gone into rehearsal without an opening number. And he suddenly said, look, we need an opening number and we need it quickly. Mm. And, uh, and you write quickly, don't you? He's never said you write well, he's, but he's once or twice said you write quickly. So I turned over the cat's opening number fairly, fairly soon, which was great fun to do because it had to be kind of fake T.S. Eliot. Yes. So it wasn't that far away from what I'd been doing in that I'd done a lot of pastiche stuff. Mm. And um, and it all started from there. All, indeed, all went from there. And luckily, um, I think they 
I think they offered me, I think it was 500 quid <laughs> as a buyout. Right, yes. And, um, and I said, with rare magnanimity, I said, no, look, I know you've had a hell of a job raising the money for this show. I will take a risk with the rest of you mm. and take whatever tiny percentage of the score, yes. you know, of the lyrics um, are going to be mine. Mm. And that was a hell of a good decision. <laughs> yes. Well, at the time, I mean, with, with Cats and indeed with Starlight, everybody thought it would run until the following Thursday and then fold. One of the, that, that opening number, um, uh, Jellicle Songs for Jellicle Cats, has some, some wonderful wordplay. Um, and indeed, because I got to know it when I was about 11, going back to it later, I suddenly realized quite how clever it is. You have a, a rhyme which is allegorical cats and, and Delphic oracle cats. And I thought that when I first heard it, the Delphic oracle was just another adjective. But then it's, no, it's, it's Delphic oracle cats. Um, did you, how did you go about, you know, spinning these, uh, these wonderful images? Um, that, that section, um, which every singing dancer in the world hates me for, because it's really <laughs> difficult, it's really difficult to learn. And that bit is, I mean, that bit, frankly, involves a certain amount of rhyming dictionary. Mm. Um, but it just, Trevor wanted a long, meaningless chunk for mm. them to all spin around to. Um, but there are, I mean, there, there are one or two bits in that opening number that I'm as pleased with as anything I've ever done, certainly. And, um, I mean, that always sounds awful to say I'm pleased with that. But I, the, the amount of stuff you're not pleased with, as you know, is vast. But every now and then you get lucky and something falls into place and you think, yeah, that's okay. There is one bit, I think, can you journey by broomstick to places far distant, familiar with candle, with book and with bell? Were you Whittington's friend, the Pied Piper's assistant? Have you been an alumnus of heaven and hell? Um, I mean, that I'm just, when I'd, when I'd done that, I thought, oh gosh, this is, and it, it, that was kind of epiphany in a way, because I thought I've never bothered to write four lines like that before because these are going to have to last um and so you do then go back over it and you are you happy with every single preposition um you sing it a lot to yourself yes i think a lot of a lot of lyricists don't do enough singing because uh, certain words sing really nicely and certain words will never ever sing you know and they can look all right on the page but um, there's, a, there's an odd Oscar Hammerstein instruction to go, no, Alan J. Lerner instruction, to go through the lyrics and see how many S's you can take out, which is an interesting idea, that, because after that it starts to annoy the ear. It is sort of too much sibilance. But that, um, I mean, the cat's opening number was fun to do, and there was a point, I think, where when Phantom was running and Starlight was running and cats were running, and there was High Society, uh, a Richard Eyre production in the West End, which I rewrote the opening number for. I think there was a point where I had four opening numbers running in the West End. <laughs> no, which, it which must... out after that. <laughs> <laughs> that must surely be unmatched, though. In uh... Uh, No, Noel Coward, I think, had five shows at one point, didn't he? Um, and uh, that's the nearest I've got to Noel Coward in any, in any respect. Were you aware, when you were writing those four lines, that you were reaching into a different place in the ether? Fairly soon after that, yes, I mm. think so. Mm. Um, and that was really interesting. And, and, you know, everything I learnt from Andrew, which is an awful lot, mm. was really about going back over it and making sure it's right and making sure it's right and making sure it's right. Because he is very rigorous about that sort of thing. And he's quite right that if, if something like Phantom is going to run for 25 years, whatever it is, it's, um, it is 25 years now, um, and people are going to go back and see it 92 times, um, then there's nothing worse than the one line that really annoys you, because it isn't quite right. And, and all the very best musicals, um, I mean, my, my sort of top five, certainly, all of them have nothing in them that you'd take out. And however much you learn them by heart, you think, yeah, every bit of that is, is a delight. And, um, and there aren't, you know, there aren't that many. Yes, and... and um... I spoke to Charles Hart last week, and uh, he has lines that he would like to change in Phantom, and because Phantom is Phantom, they just won't let him. No. <laughs> it's been enshrined no. now. No, I mean, Charles did, a, Charles did a brilliant job on Phantom. He really did. It's, um, I mean, it's odd, because I mean, it's a very happy collaboration without either of us meeting until after, after it opened. 
I mean, I don't think you can tell. A lot of people say, oh, I know which are your bits and I know which are his, and they're always wrong. <laughs> and do you intend to keep that information secret? Absolutely, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you come to, to be writing to, for Phantom? Um, because Starlight had opened, and to everybody's surprise, not done as badly as we thought it would. And so Andrew uh, sent me this, um, I think, a photocopy of the entire book, because he's got people who can do that sort of thing for him. Uh, and I read, that, I read it, and I said, yeah, it's, you know, it's a terrible book and a terrific story. <laughs> um, I think before that, I had um, said of Aspects of Love, this is a brilliant book and an awful story, which I still think it is. I mean, the key, to, if, you're, if you're going to sit in a theatre, really, you need to care what happens to people, don't you? And if, if there's nobody in the show who you like, so you don't care what their fate is. And for, I thought, just thought Aspects of Love was about five self-serving, selfish people. And I didn't, I didn't care where they went. Um, so, well, yeah, my mistake, really. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, Phantom, is, uh, Phantom ticks all the boxes that you need for um, a subject for musical theatre. Mm. You know, that it's that emotional level is high enough for you to need to sing. Um, and it's also it's, it's a backstage musical, basically, which is always easier because then the singing is more logical. Yes. And it's, uh, it's, its romantic journey is A to Z, not A to B. Mm. There is the life force character, who there has to be, and the character who is changed by the life force character. And all of these, all of these rules were written down by, oh, a guy at Harvard who um, did a PhD in music theatre uh -huh. and studied all the hits on Broadway and all the things they had in common, and and they all had this life force character, somebody who is changed by the life force character, a I have been changed song and I am going to change things song, and and every hit had had these things in common. In the U.S., there are courses um, which music theatre writers can, can go on to learn their craft. Um, we, we're starting to have that now in the UK, but uh, it's fledgling, I would, I would say. How important do you think that education in that field is? Because we, we tend to produce sort of ma you know, maverick talent that goes its own way, which I think is a great thing. But um, what's your view on, the edu in, on teaching and learning of music theatre craft? I would, I would love to go to the Tom Lehrer six-month course in History of American Music Theatre, which is, I think, at Berkeley. Um, and I think he still teaches it. He's 83, and I think he still does it. Goodness. Um, you can... I'm, I'm also always amazed by the number of musical writers uh, or people with ambitions to write musicals who know almost nothing about it. Mm. Um, and when I say know almost nothing about it, that Lorenzo de Ponte wouldn't mean anything to them, mm. who wrote all the Mozart's words, or most of them, and Giacosa and Elika, who wrote Puccini's stuff. And I think, you know, nobody would... No serious novelist sits down to write a novel without having read Jane Austen and Dostoevsky and Dickens and all of that. But an awful lot of people writing musicals seem to think that just going once to see Rent then means that you can go home and do it right. And actually, you know, so many good guys have made the mistakes for you in the past. And it's easier to learn from other people's mistakes rather than your own. So I, I, I was really lucky that I, I grew up in Liverpool and saw masses of shows on tour, particularly shows that never made it to London. Mm. And so when I was 15 and 16, my big brother and I went to the Royal Court in Liverpool to see shows that were absolutely appalling <laughs> and never made it into London. And, but you learned far more about what was, what was wrong with them than you did by seeing a show which later triumphed. Mm -hmm. uh, not answering your question, should people learn? Yes, they, they are, absolutely they should. Because um, if nothing else, I mean, there are a few simple lessons you can pick up. Um, naturally, all of the real advances disobey almost all the rules that were ever made. <laughs> but it, you get to those advances quicker if you know what the rules are that you're disobeying. And that, that, having said that, one of the things that makes Lennon and McCartney great is a lack of knowledge of the rules. Hmm. So off they went. Yes. But that's Lennon and McCartney. That's two geniuses. <laughs> yes. You know, and if you're not a genius, um, learning stuff gets you nearer to being good. 
I mean, I'd, I'd like to come back to the issues of, of craft in, in a little while, but it's interesting what you said about Phantom of the Opera, the source material, um, because there have been so many great musicals that have been found from second-rate source material. So Absolutely, yeah. You know, so that the, you know, the, those those plays that Rodgers and Hammerstein turned up, which weren't necessarily huge hits, they found the perfect vehicle for, you know... No, absolutely. The, the Carousel in Oklahoma come from fairly dark stuff on the whole, don't they? Where, the, I mean, the only real exception to this is uh, is My Fair Lady. Yes. That Pygmalion is absolutely perfect as a play, and you would think that songs would ruin it. And it's um, it, a real surprise and delight that the songs add things to it. Um, but if you go back and see Pygmalion, you don't miss the songs at all. Mm. And and it's one of the most faithful adaptations as well. It's I think not... there are supposed to be, there's a lot, obviously a lot of cuts, but I think Alan Lerner wrote six new lines of dialogue. Mm. And um, he was, uh, this, is, this is a long story, but never mind. When I was really struggling on Phantom of the Opera and getting nowhere, really, because it was, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing I, would, I knew about, writing mm. something like that. Mm. Um, and Cameron McIntosh said, so, shall we bring in somebody to help you? And I said, no, of course not, I'm doing this. <laughs> and he said, suppose it was Alan J. Lerner. And I said, yeah, okay, that would be different. <laughs> Who I had met, I think, once at, at, at a do, and was an utterly charming man. So a couple of days later, I had lunch with Alan J. Lerner. And he said, all right, I've read the stuff that you've done, and it's not right, but it's not awful. Mm. So what we're going to do is this. Um, you do some rewrites, and I'll have a look at them, and then we'll tell Cameron that I wrote them. And then he'll <laughs> think they're great. <laughs> and so I did that, and start, we started on this process. And then Alan J. Lerner went to the doctors, and the doctor said, you've got three months to live. Hmm. And so Alan J. Lerner rang up Cameron and me and said, look, I've got three months to live. I really don't want to spend the last three months of my life doing rewrites for somebody else. <laughs> and so that never happened. Wow. But if he hadn't got ill and died, um, maybe I would have written the whole of Phantom of the Opera with Alan J. Lerner, uh, which would have been absolutely fascinating. Mm. I still wouldn't have been as good as what Charles did. <laughs> T tell me about the different sorts of experiences, you know, Phantom versus... Starlight versus Cats, because you know, the, obviously there's a lot of crossover between the creative teams, but very different pieces. Uh, yeah, hugely. I mean, Cats was pretty simple. I had to do one number, mailed it in, and everybody said, "Yeah, fine, change that bit." So I changed that bit, and that was it. Mm. Um, but then at that point, I was Andrew's new lyricist, so um, I was, so he was pussyfooting around me a bit. Mm -hmm. Then gradually, the more you get to work with him the more you find yourself working for him rather than with him. Uh -huh. And um, and I think every lyricist who's worked with him would say that. Um, so Starlight, yeah, Star, gosh, Starlight started off in an almost completely different form and took a long time to get right. Um, and then we rewrote it for America, which made it slightly worse. Because with, um, sorry, because with Starlight, you did, you, there was no source material, was there? It was an original idea of Andrews. Is, it is was. Right? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he had this thing called Rocky Mountain Railroad, which was, I think before that, it was going to be a Thomas the Tank Engine, the musical. And as soon as we started working on that, um, it, all the music was very sort of toy town and English and rumpy town and not very rock and roll. And as soon as you move it to America, mm. then suddenly um, country and western rhythm and blues and all the, all the great train songs uh, become possible. Um, and that was, I mean, that was a long, long process, uh, quite apart from then trying to put it all on roller skates. And, <laughs> you know, with some, for a fairly insubstantial piece, an awful lot of thought went into it. Yes. And, and the, I mean, the story is very simple. The story is Cinderella. Yes. That you've got a little covered in smoke um, steam train and two ugly sisters, one of whom is a diesel train and one of whom is... Um, an electric train, mm. and um, you know the little the underdog triumphs. It's not um, not very complicated. So, how did you sustain your belief in the piece and in yourself as you as you made that long journey? Um, that was you just kept going, really. Mm. But at least at that with Starlight, when something wasn't wrong, I think I knew why it wasn't wrong, and I knew how to put it right. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Phantom, 
I mean, there were artistic differences that I wanted Phantom to be more sort of Grand Guignol, I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, more uh, Roger Corman horror. Yes. That kind of, that ra- the Raven, more Vincent yes. Price-ish, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think. And Andrew, quite rightly, um, kept saying, no, no, it, it has to be like this. And ha- this song has to tell the story from that point to that point, but it also has to be a number one hit. And, um, and I didn't really know where I was going with that. So when I was doing rewrites, what I was doing was just writing something else, not something better. Mm-hmm. And there was a point where, yeah, I, I, I didn't know whether what I'd written was better than this time than the last time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it, you know, it got to a point where it was going nowhere, really, and I wasn't able to fix it. So somebody else came in to fix it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that wasn't, obviously wasn't how I felt at the time. But it's how I feel now about it. Mm. Mm. Just going back to your post-university days, as you talking about rock and roll, you were actually in a pop group, or is it your, your own pop group? I had, a, I had a band in Liverpool when I was growing up, yeah, and in my teens. And yes, we played at the Cavern a couple of times. We were called Tony Snow and the Blizzards, because <laughs> Liverpool's best group was called Rory Stillman and the Hurricanes. So our <laughs> name was sort of homage to them. Uh-huh. And um, we were seriously bad. We really were. <laughs> But we did once come second in a rock and roll competition in a church hall to a band called the Quarrymen, <laughs> who, who went on to become the Beatles. Yes. And um, that was the nearest we got to global megastardom. But uh, mostly, we were half skiffle, half rock and roll. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we did a lot of... I was a big admirer of Lonnie Donegan, and we did a lot mm-hmm. of his stuff. Did everyone have a, a kind of sensibility for pop and, and rock when you were at university? No, absolutely not. No, it, I mean, it had only just got going. I mean, mm-hmm. I was at... I went to uni in 1961. Mm. Um, so it's well pre-Beatles, well after Elvis and Chuck Berry, Bill Haley. Mm. But pop music was still dominated by sort of Alma Cogan and Ruby Murray and stuff like that. And was still light, very lightweight. And the, you know, the, the teenage boom and the teenage buying power hadn't really kicked in. I mean, mm. I in, uh, the day that I went to university... I bet that I was a much younger person than you were in terms of grown-upness and sophistication mm. because uh, we all were then. I mean, not everything. I mean, uh, there was, I'd already sort of hitchhiked around Europe and had, yeah, best music theatre training you could possibly have. I'd stood for six consecutive nights at the back of the Vienna State Opera wow. watching half of The Ring and Aida and Figaro and things. and Oh, wonderful. Total, total cost of about a pound. <laughs> Fantastic. You, you sung opera as well, haven't you? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Not well. Um, not well at all. But it took me a, few, took me a couple of years to realise that I was really seriously mediocre at that. And I'm really glad I was, because I've, I've had a really nice life. Mm. I'm having a really nice life. <laughs> and if I'd just been Tom Allen, say, mm. or Bryn Turbell, um no, not in the case of Brent Turbull, but if, if I'd just been Tom Allen, who I'm, you know, a great admirer of, um, I would have worked to a much narrower set of people. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it wouldn't have been as varied and wouldn't have been as much fun, mm. actually. Mm. How did you first get into the BBC and that, that world of uh, which seems to sort of sweep you up from programme to program you know appearing on that's life and nationwide and uh... i was doing uh 1964 i suppose when i was what 21 um i was doing a series of sort of satirical musical reviews Mm -hmm. in a nightclub in london Mm -hmm. and a producer from the bbc came along and said um come and sing some songs on the program Mm. and so that got me into the radio and having got into the radio i started doing one-man shows of my songs and stuff around the place and after about 13 years of that um somebody in the fine tradition of the bbc somebody i'd been at school with said would you like to come on to nationwide um very simply because he'd been expelled from school and i hadn't <laughs> so he quite enjoyed the fact that he could give me a job and i couldn't give him a job Excellent. so the school had obviously expelled the wrong one <laughs> often people help um opening doors for you um, you have to be, you have to be on the outside of the door in order to be helped, and you have to do the business once you get in through the door. You know, and to anybody, 
anybody with show business ambitions, um, you achieve absolutely nothing sitting at home. Mm. You know, if you, if you are out in a pub somewhere singing a song for nothing, somebody might be there. Yes. And if they notice you, then next time you could be singing a song for something. But, you know, accept every free gig to begin with. And, um, and after a bit, eventually, if you, if you have anything at all, somebody will spot it. There's a wonderful evening um, at the Good Ship Pub in uh, Kilburn that's been going for a, a couple of years, run by Robbie Hudson and uh, and Toby Davis, and and that's it's a sort of a sort of open mic, but not not but, but it, it's it's comedy and it's storytelling. It's very it's very gentle. It's very lovely, and um, it's the sort of it's a really nice evening to go to and to to, to see a lot of clever people doing entertaining things. Yeah, and I know that. Um, John Finnamore, who's uh, just got his own show, show on Radio 4. I think he... Uh... Who was I? I think the last time I did the Now Show, mm. um, he was doing stand-up on that. Yes, yes. And he, he does um, uh, Cabin Pressure, doesn't he? Yes. yes. Which is brilliant. Yes. Um, and the, his latest show, one is uh, the John Finnamore Souvenir Programme, I believe it's called. And, and That's uh, it, yeah. With um, a lot of good stuff on it. Yeah. Really, yeah, there really was a good. very funny sketch about Piglet and Pooh and Eeyore a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> He's, which he's... ended with something about, ah, oh, that's the heifer lump in the room. Which <laughs> <I thought laughs> a really lovely line. Gorgeous, fantastic. You've mentioned Tom Lehrer. Um, yeah. But, as you say, he hasn't, he's never written a musical. Who's the, the, the writer from the world of musicals that you either you, you most admire or you, you think, yeah, that's, that's it, what they've got, what they did? Um, oh, God. I mean, there are, there are lots. Mm. Um, Frank Lesser. Yes. Um, most of all, Hammerstein. Really, because, I mean, Hammerstein worked with Sigmund Romberg, with Richard Rogers, with Jerome Kern, mm. with loads of them, and found a style for each one. Mm. Um, no, I mean, it's pretty much perfect mm. and uh, easy, to, easy to underestimate because it, it flows so easily and feels so easy. Yes. You know, and um, quite often that's the hardest thing to do, to distill it down to the absolute perfect simple stuff. But yeah, that was it. Was what got me going. I I went to see Oklahoma. We did a visit from Liverpool to London to see my grannies uh, when I was seven, and I went to see Oklahoma at Drury Lane with Howard Keel in it. And um, yeah, and even at seven, I thought, ooh, gosh. Well, it was their first show together, and it was the one that um, put a stake through the heart of the of the light satirical musical you know for, yes um... and at the time i mean there you are it's oklahoma is um all sugary and lovely and about uh nationhood statehood mm-hmm. um and about the conflict between the change from the open range and the cowboys to the farmers mm-hmm. uh and there, you know, there are serious issues in there just as you know race is addressed very well in a lot of rogers and hammerstein shows yes. um domestic violence and carousel mm. Um, and they're, they're wonderful at sliding the sugar in, mm. uh, at, at sugaring the pill and yes. sliding the pill in, so that, yes, you have seen something of substance in every case. Mm. And at the same time, that you know, well, while Roger and Hammerstein were introducing all those shows to London, we were doing Salad Days, <laughs> which is sweet and great fun. Yes. But it's saying this isn't a serious art form, you know. We took a long time to catch up in terms of the grown-up music, the, I suppose the emotional scale. Yeah. We also, we didn't, we didn't actually have anybody attempting to write uh, like Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. It, it may well be that whenever there's a giant around, as the, I mean, at the moment we've got two giants, haven't we? That we've got Sondheim and Lloyd Webber. Um, in a way, their very existence prevents almost anybody else surfacing. Um, for a start, their shows fill up all the theatres that are suitable for musicals. So there isn't anywhere to put your musical on, um, but it's. I mean, there was a really good English com- Irish composer called Stephen Storis, who was working in Vienna around about 1788, at the time when a certain Mozart was writing in Vienna, and Stephen Storis's stuff is really good, and nobody's ever heard of him, because all the spotlights were shining on Mozart. There's a certain amount of um, of serendipity or otherwise, isn't there? Yeah. To, where, where you rise to, rise to fame when nobody else is <laughs> is a good rule. And of course, Stephen Sondheim had Oscar Hammerstein as a mentor, teacher, and father figure. 
Um, so there's a there's a certain amount of I don't know if it's baton passing because what Sondheim does is so different, but um, you 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 get the sense of a of a through line in 20th century music theatre. Oh, and you get the sense. I mean, you know, Sondheim went to Juilliard to do music, um, which is again a, it's a good thing for lyricists to be at least halfway competent musically. Um, you're not writing a poem; you're writing a song, and so. I've never met a lyricist who didn't have loads of tunes in their heads that they'd never told anybody about. <laughs> you know, and often the composer produces some sort of a tune, but it's never as good as the one the lyricist thought of. <laughs> when you're working with Andrew, I imagine that you were writing lyrics to existing melodies, or, or at least to, to Andrew's melodies. He would provide usually, the music yes. First. I mean, usually we would we would sit around until we had a hook for each song, um, you know, a title and the tune to which that title went. Um, and then Andrew would go away and finish the tune, and then I would put the words to it. But there's a... I mean, you could draw a sort of a graph that the faster the song, the more likely it is that the words get written first. If you see what I mean. That um, there isn't much point in Rossini writing all of that music and then somebody going to deadly diddly diddly dee um, to fit with it. Um... So if it's a, a point number or a pattern number or that kind of thing, then quite often the, the music would come first. As with Gilbert and Sullivan with the, with the patter, um, that has to come from the lyricist. I think Gilbert wrote everything first, and then Sullivan did the music. And certainly, yeah, there are, there are no rules to this. I think, I mean, I know Fritz Lowe wrote all of the music, and then Lerner wrote all of the words. But I think they both knew where the song was going before they started. In other words, they'll have had, get me to the church on time, done, together. Mm. And then they'll have kind of known what sort of song it was going to be. Yes. But the danger is if the lyricist goes away and writes all the words, you get neat four square blocks, mm. quatrains, four line chunks. It's very hard for a composer then to write a brand new tune to that. Yeah. What's your opinion of Gilbert and Sullivan? Um, because he's they're, they're they're there at the sort of at the start of it all for English British songwriters. Yeah, I mean it's a surprise that something like the Merry Widow and all the Strauss operettas are worldwide, and Gilbert and Sullivan aren't because it's terrific music. I mean it's very up itself and silly, <laughs> um, blindingly clever. Yes, still works. Mm. Um, I've I've just done a new verse for for a Ruddy Gore that ah. Off the North are doing. Um, you can change the odd bit, but actually um, most of it is still funny and still touching. Mm. Um, I mean, I say that because I grew up with the Dolly Cart on tour, yes. which wasn't necessarily very good. But you thought, God, that's neat as every extra as every line came through, um, and a lot of a lot of the satire still chimes. Um, some of the, some of the pieces better than others. It, it, some of it comes across as reactionary, the kind of stance against um, the stance in, in regards to female emancipation. Yeah, but I mean, everybody, everybody writes in the era that they're in, don't they? And you can't expect um, somebody to suddenly develop the liberal values of a hundred years hence mm -hmm. at the time that they're writing. Sometimes feels to me that Gilbert was absolutely on the satirical money but when it came to um, perhaps more seriously felt love duets or romantic numbers he gets a little bit caught up with flowery poetic images he gets very victorian mm. Mm, um, yes. and and actually all the love duets are actually pastiche of Donizetti and mm. that kind of thing um, I think he found it embarrassing to sit down and write a heartfelt emotional lyric um, something I feel <laughs> a certain fellow feeling with <laughs> It's not what I'm best at. Well, I, I think it's it's sort of the hardest thing, really. I mean, to I mean, it, both for lyrics and for uh, for lyricists and composers that that it ab it abs there's there's a tiny little song in Starlight that nobody ever notices called "Make Up My Heart," mm. which I was really proud of because it was the first time I'd ever written a new love song mm. that wasn't the same as everybody else's love songs. Uh -huh. And um, yeah, very hard, very hard to do if you're not of a schmaltzy disposition mm -hmm. I suppose mm -hmm. or if you just giggle I suppose whenever you, <laughs> whenever you write I love you on a piece of paper you think <laughs> you know. and um, yeah it's still not something I'm ever going to find easy mm. which I think you know, so 
problem for me and my analyst, really. <laughs> Can we talk about Perfect Rhyme uh, and its reasons? It's not just a pedantic tick, is it? I don't think so. I think somehow that the ear and the brain like the perfect shape of a perfect rhyme. Mm. And if you use... I mean, you, you, can, you can make your own rules. Um, there are great, great songs with no rhymes in at all. Mm. You know, Moonlight in Vermont and things mm. like that. Um, and once you get used to the fact that the first two lines don't rhyme and nor do the next two, mm. then the ear also accepts that quite quickly. Mm. But there is a kind of symmetry yes. to rhyme that... A, it makes it wonderfully easy to memorize. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, if it has a purpose, you, kids learn all kinds of stuff at nursery school because it's in rhyme. Mm -hmm. And you can, um, I remember doing a kid's song about how to tie a tie once, which still a whole generation knows. <laughs> and they know how to tie a tie because it was in rhyme. You know, and um, so is there, a, is there anything other than pedantry? No. When you're trying to create anything, you give yourself a set of rules and try and work within those rules because you're more likely to get a useful result than if you say, I'm now going to write free verse and there are no rules. Then you, it's harder to know whether you've done anything worthwhile at the end of it. Um, so, you know, the rules, the frame, the shape for anything created are fantastically useful. What are perhaps some other examples of rules and guidelines that are there for you, either consciously or subconsciously? Well, other than it must scan and it must rhyme, mm. no, I don't think so. I don't, when I'm sitting down to write, I don't think, oh, and I must remember this and I must remember that. How do you shape a song from, from A to B or A to Z? Well, usually you get an idea and you write a verse. And the, one of the great freedoms is the moment you realize that what you've written might be the last verse or verse two. Mm -hmm. Because when you write the verse first, you assume it's verse one. And it often isn't. It's often the best thought you're going to have on that subject. Yes. So writing the rest of the song to lead up to what you've just written, rather than using it as a starting point, is, is really quite a useful trick. It's almost the only useful trick I've learned, I think. <laughs> Except to, except to nitpick, you know. I mean, if you're doing a standard two verses bridge, last verse song, making sure that all of it is as good as each other is it's just so important because otherwise it's going to annoy you so much in years to come. And, um, you know, if you look at the Lorenz Hart lyrics and those sort of things, there's just nothing lazy in them at all. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the Orpheus Centre? Yeah, I mean, this was, um, people were doing writing for the disabled and sport for the disabled, and nobody was doing music for the disabled. Mm. And I got involved in this with a guy called Michael Swallow, who was a neurologist in Belfast. And he was doing a series of sort of music holidays, where 20 young disabled people, 20 music students, and a couple of tutors would do a week of writing lots and lots of songs, lots of music, and then putting a concert on on the Friday night. Mm. And these were fantastic experiences for everybody not least me and you got you got a level of invention and story because particularly the disabled guys brought so much variety of story with them mm. you know if you just had the music students um they wouldn't have had the same diversity of experience and you also got um songs coming out of people about stuff that they wouldn't talk about and i suppose a lot of what I'm doing now of getting young people to write songs is doing that, that they will, they will be having problems at home or prob you know, problems with dad, problems in relationships. And in a way, one of the things a song is for is to, be a is to enable you to express stuff that you find really hard to talk about. You know, certainly for the repressed old English, mm. no English relationship would get going if we didn't have the love song going on in the background which kind of gives you permission to hold hands with somebody during it. Um, and otherwise, we'd never make a move. Um, I don't know why the Italians have so much music, because they usually crash into each other immediately, <laughs> but, and don't mind talking about anything. Yes. But we need the song. Everybody needs song. And song can be a fantastic vehicle for getting uh, heavy emotions or wonderful emotions out of people. Mm. 
it's nothing to do with disabled people. It's to do with people who feel outside of things and can sort of sing their way back into the world in a way. Mm. And so Orpheus, I mean, which is now, you know, thriving establishment with 26 young disabled people living there for three years, writing lots of songs, performing lots of songs, and amazing lots of people, and get, altering their self-confidence and their life chances. That's the idea, anyway. Mm. And pretty much works. And every, you know, every songwriter who comes and works with us, Mitch Benn has been down and done a course with us. Um, every songwriter who comes and helps these people get write their songs goes away being energized and thrilled. Mm. You should come and do it, Tim. I'd yeah, absolutely right. Love to. Um, I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that it took us so long to write musicals with the emotional scale of Rodgers and Hammerstein, actually, why we're a little bit uncomfortable about being emotionally vulnerable and exposed in what we write, which is perhaps... That may be, tr- uh, may be true, that America is a less repressed nation than we are. And also the American musical grew up from huge diaspora from Europe mm. at, the, at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, yes. bringing with it um, all of the operetta and all of European music then, yes. and then combining it with American traditions and uh, black music as well. Mm. Um, and, and, and it Jewish was always music America's music. It was always yeah. serious stuff. Yes. That, and the American music theater was, was always reckoned, you know. Um, and over here, it was, it was second rate. Mm. Um, and it's taken us a long time. It's still, you know, it's still a battle. It's a battle I've, you know, been part of all my life. <laughs> that, yes. you know, that popular music and popular culture yes. are seriously worth looking at. Yes. Um, and are not worth just because people like it. Yeah. But there is a British assumption that if lots of people like it, it can't be any good. One of the purposes of this podcast is to be a resource for, for new writers, um, both in terms of career advice, <laughs> advice. That sounds very sick form, doesn't it? Careers advice. But also... Um, tips techniques do you do you have uh, any general advice for somebody that's approaching the <laughs> the uh, business in in the loosest uh, terms of, of of writing a musical yeah um find the history and one of the things you will find out when you look at the history is that almost every single great writer of musicals started off with an absolute turkey <laughs> honestly yes. i mean there isn't a, there isn't a great writer of musicals who hasn't written a flop and very often it's a flop that they write early on. So get the flop done. Yes. You know, that, that don't think, oh, no, I, I will now write a masterpiece. Mm. What you're doing is now writing a musical. Get it written. Yeah. The blank sheet of paper is a fright. It's much less frightening once it's got some writing on it. Yes. So get, get something down and keep writing things down until you think, oh, that's good. And very often it's the hand and the fingers that have the idea rather than the brain, mm. that somehow the very process of writing, yes. or the computer if you're writing on a computer, yes. but um, I find I'm, my typing is too slow for my thought processes, so I'd rather scribble in pencil and then write, oh, that's all right, and rub that out and write it in biro, and then copy it out in ink, which is perhaps mm. how I do it. Mm. And, then, and then type it out if it's worth it. But the awful thing is that when it's typed out, it looks as if it's good. <laughs> you know, it looks finished Yes. once it's typed. Yes. Um, so, yeah, do write. Write, mm. write a musical quickly mm. yes. and see if there's anything good in it. Mm. And it may well be that there's one good song in it. And you will find that there, you know, like, um, I think Someone to Watch Over Me, Gershwin, uh, I think was in four shows before it found a hit to be in. Mm. So, you know, be not daunted. Learn, learn how the others did it. Um, don't slavishly copy. I mean, there, there are far too many writers trying to be Sondheim at the moment. Yes. Try to be as good as Sondheim, but don't try to be Sondheim. Yeah. Are there any other writers at the moment that have caught your ear? Um, well, young Jason, mm-hmm. obviously, Jason Robert Brown. That is good. It's a bit... Uh, the Americans do a fine line in me songs. I am what I am songs. Yes. Um, and there's a certain defiant Liza Minnelli... Um, my problems are my problems, and I'm not going to share them with you, <laughs> which I think is an American thing rather than a British thing. Um, but others, um, well, apart from you, Tim, <laughs> no, because no, I mean, I've heard quite a lot of your stuff, and it's really, really adroit, and it's really good, and it makes sense, and it's, um, it's also, some of it is unashamedly funny. <laughs> now, 
I grew up in the world when it was called musical comedy. Mm. And, and it's a pity that musicals have got very, very serious. Yes. That I, I think there is plenty of room, uh, particularly um, in times of recession when people need cheering up. I think a happy, funny musical um, would be no bad thing for somebody to attempt again because nobody has attempted it for quite a long time. I suppose, um, I suppose Betty Blue Eyes was meant to be a happy, funny musical. Yes. I didn't think it quite reached its ambition, personally. Mm, mm. But, um, but it had good things in it. The problem of farce and musicals is, is quite a well-documented one, that actually once the farce gets going, the music sometimes has to kind of scarper. You know, Viz, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Yes. Yeah, there was a not very good musical of Rookery Nook. Mm. which just slowed down the whole thing and ruined the, ruined the pacing of it mm-hmm. um, because the songs inevitably sort of stop mm. and not enough people go in and out through doors and get hidden in cupboards during the songs. <laughs> yes. Um, Stars and Drew, I, I mean, Stars and Drew are a serious talent, obviously. Yes, absolutely. No, very good stuff. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I think, surprising how few people there are battering on the door. Mm. Uh, Skellen and I toured around for 17 years happily Mm. singing sort of substandard Flanders and Swans. But we were always <laughs> amazed that nobody else did. Yes. Because yes. it's quite an easy job. I mean, as Kit Heft is Harvey. Yes. Um, who obviously, you know, has, has a huge talent. Mm. There, there isn't yet a, a real proper musical by Kit, which is a pity. Mm. You know, because um, you know, it's always a pity when miniaturists mm. don't do something on a broader canvas. canvas. You know, we, we do have... a. a, a pretty good history of writing individual songs, either satirical songs, funny songs, we seem to be able to nail that, but I mean, I mean maybe it's just simply a technical challenge of how do you get the funniness that you can get on the nose of a line, of a, a rhyme and a one-off song into um, you know, into the narrative fabric of a, of a whole evening in the yeah. theatre No, quite tricky, but I mean I would you know, I would go and see a musical with songs by Dilly Keane and there isn't one and it would, you know, I, I think that's a pity that she should really do that I've told her she should. And she says, don't be so feckin' stupid, she says. And um, so I stop. <laughs> and maybe we need to get Stephen Fry back on the case because he's, he's being a, a great ambassador for musicals at the moment. Yeah. And maybe he should be, uh, you know, he should be scripting because, of course, the, we haven't talked about the, uh, the libretto, which is at the core of everything. Um, unless the book, you've the got book a, in the book, yes. yes. Unless you're writing a through-composed musical, <laughs> in which case. But you need, some, you need you something. Still need, you, still, you still need a book, in effect, don't you? In the old days of the LP of the show, on the back cover of the LP of the show, it usually said, the curtain rises, curly, a cowboy comes in, brackets, oh, what a beautiful morning. He meets Aunt Ella, and then it describes the plot of the show in about 150 words with each song in brackets so that you could follow through the LP and know what the, what the show was about. Um, once you've written that bit from the back of the LP with all the song titles in. After that is craft. Yeah. <laughs> but actually you've created the musical. Yes. If you've written, you know, the, the little bit in the Radio Times that would describe the show. And conversely, if you don't do that, I think the, the danger is that you start, at, you know, you start with, well, I've got an idea here and I'm going to yeah. write it. And, and at some point it's going to, the, the end is going to reveal itself to me. Um, and then you have, you know, the, the, the flaws of um, the world are littered with our finished musicals. Yeah, my... my my floor is littered with opening numbers, <laughs> you know, right from way back in the 80s. Um, um, yeah, still, I really enjoy writing the opening number because it's challenging to get everybody introduced and things so that you know where you are and who everybody is. And then I sit there and think, you know, what the hell do I do with them now? You know, one should have sorted that out before you wrote the opening <laughs> number. Well, maybe there's a review called Opening Numbers. Um, yeah, but get, get Samey in Act 2, wouldn't you? <laughs> Is it a is it a more forbidding world uh, for for a, a, a new writer of music theatre than it than it was? And if so, why? And maybe it isn't. Maybe that's just an illusion. Like you know, policemen are getting younger. Well, the policemen are getting younger. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. That's true. Um, is it more forbidding? There is a certain sort of musical which has grown up. I mean, bearing in mind that before Cats and Les Mis and Starlight and Phantom, nothing ran more than three or four years. Mm. You now have a musical which is a kind of grade two listed musical, tourist <laughs> attraction, National Trust musical, and people come from all over the world to see it. And they come and they watch it, um, speaking their various languages, yeah. which is frustrating for the lyricist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I always think it's 
I've been to see productions of mine and looked around an audience and seen not a single English-speaking person in the audience and thinking, why am I getting paid for this? <laughs> when not a single word of the lyrics is going home. Mm. But as a result of that audience developing, and it's been a wonderful thing for the British, British economy, mm. um, as a result of that audience developing, musicals have become more expensive-looking. Mm. That The music carries the emotion because the words aren't getting through to the second language speaker, and the set has to move around and do glamorous things because that has to be part of what's a non-linguistic experience. Mm. Now, there's absolutely no need for that. There, is, there must still be place for the low-budget, sophisticated, really witty, accurate, moving piece that doesn't have to have a huge chorus and doesn't have to have a huge cast. Mm. I'm surprised that more people don't finish their musical, get some friends together and put it on with everybody with scores sitting on chairs. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, if the score is good enough and if the book is good enough and if the lyrics are good enough, somebody will then say, oh, I see what we can do with that. Yes. But the assumption is always, no, you will do the demo disc, you'll send it and a copy of the score to a producer yeah. and they will then spend four million pounds on it which they won't. You know, I mean, I've been trying for years with other shows of mine. And um, no, you never, get, you never get anywhere. You have to get some friends together and take the risk yeah. and do a production somewhere, yes. just like your open mic nights. Yes. You know, if you really believe in your show, put it on for nothing. Get everybody else to be part of it for nothing. Just a piano, um, depending on what sort of, you know, if a piano is the right thing. Yes. That you can make, you know, using a keyboard, you can make pretty good backing now for the show, and get, you know, get people to see it. Mm. Um, don't you know? It doesn't need to be staged, but people will, people with imagination will need to be able to te tell whether that can be turned into a piece of theatre. Great thing is that the colleges, um, that there seems to be a lot of hunger for for new writing um, in the music theatre courses at the academies. Yes, absolutely. The conservatoires now do serious courses in this, and and there's always. Among, among young performers, there's always an appetite for doing young material and new stuff. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty healthy, mm. but it's, it's, waiting, it's waiting for um, something radical and different. Yeah. The, danger, the danger is always, when there is a successful vein running, that everybody sort of taps into it, rather than saying, no, let's dig a completely different sort of mine somewhere else. There, there isn't much really underivative new stuff. I mean, the last, the last brand new show I saw, which really felt brand new, was called In the Heights. and was on Broadway, and I think won the Tony that year, which used rap absolutely brilliantly. And, and rap is a wonderful way of getting an awful lot of information across very quickly. Yes. And, and hardly anybody has brought it into music theatre. Um, I did a project in prison quite recently with some of the Orpheus guys and with a rapper. And we did a few numbers where the prisoners would rap and somebody would sing a big legato line over the top of it. And you got some fantastic work from that. But we wouldn't have done it without being in a strange place and trying something completely new. Um, I mean, we, we lack at the moment. There isn't a National Youth Music Theatre, which there used to be. And an awful lot of people came up to it. There's Youth Theatre UK, which does some good stuff. YMT UK. YMT, yeah. But they're not as established as the mm. National Youth Music Theatre had become. And it would be really nice to have a group of talented young people who were up for trying your new material on. Yes. Um, because they're always looking for stuff. Um, and there isn't that. It's, um, it's odd because, you know, we've got National Youth Jazz Orchestra, National Youth, National Youth Orchestra, National Youth Choir. But we haven't that, um, we haven't that other organization. I think YMT have been commissioning quite a lot um, from Connor Mitchell, for example. And I've seen, I've seen some of that, and, and some of that which really, really worked. Mm. I, was, uh, I was really impressed with, with one of their pieces. Uh, the, the Wishing Tree, I think. The, the Dummy Tree. The dum that was it, yes. The Dummy Tree is the thing they have in the States, isn't it? Mm. Yes, right, yeah. It was originally that when, you've, when, you've, when you don't need what the Americans call your comforter anymore, yes. Yes. you then hang it on this tree, and it's, it's kind of bonnets for a moment. Yes, which is a fantastic image. Isn't it, yeah. Richard, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and expertise. Thank you for being my first guest and, um, and keep, keep doing the wonderful things you're doing. Well, I mean, that's, that's really nice of you. It's, I mean, A, I've enjoyed it very much, but, but also it's, 
it's very difficult, music theatre, because there is more to go wrong than anything else. That if you're going to have scenery and actors and singers and dancers and an orchestra, it's, there is a lot of pitfalls. But when they're all pointing in the same direction and at full tilt, mm. you know, there is nothing like it. And all, almost all the best experiences I've ever had in a theatre where I've really been lifted up have been either opera or musicals. Mm. And um, so it's worth trying for that. Yes. Even if you even if you only get the moment once. <laughs> yeah, those moments are worth it. Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. I've been talking to Richard Stilgo, the lyricist of Starlight Express and much, much more besides. Please tune in next time when I will be talking to Phantom of the Opera lyricist Charles Hart. Mm-hmm.